So we're looking for one second time at the opening seven verses of Romans 13. And we saw last week that earthly authority is a delegated authority. Authorities receive their right to rule from the Lord. He alone has supreme authority. He alone possesses authority inherently, by right. That authority which God has is his because he is God. If the creator alone sits at the top of the hierarchy of governance within his created world, then absolute authority belongs to him alone. Now, because they are appointed by God to disobey earthly authorities is to disobey the Lord himself. But there is a, a really important uh, principle that we also have to take in, into account when we consider these verses. This is something that we, we did not consider too much last week, but we need to delve into more this week. The basic principle could be put like this. No earthly authority may lawfully forbid what God commands or command what God forbids. That's probably the most basic way of putting it. And that's a really basic principle that needs to be borne in mind. Often, it will be clear and obvious. Occasionally, it can be slightly more murky. Usually, it's clear and obvious. When earthly authorities overstep the mark, civil disobedience may be absolutely right for Christian believers. But in most cases, Christians are obligated to render uh, civil obedience, to make their lives and themselves subject to the governing authorities under which they live. And it's really helpful to remember, as we mentioned last week, that Paul is writing to Christians who were living under a very pagan government. Paul is writing, telling them to live in submission to pagan Rome. Jesus lived his earthly life in submission to pagan Rome. Civil authorities do not have to be perfect. Civil authorities do not even have to be Christian for us to still be required to live our lives in subjection to them. We find that principle being lived out all through the Bible, Old Testament and New. So last week we examined the principles which lie behind this teaching. Number one, all authorities are ordained by God. Number two, to reject such authority is to reject God. And number three, we looked at the role and purpose of such authority. And there's a, a couple of things. The maintaining and encouraging of law and order and of that which is good. The discouraging and punishing of that which is evil. In that respect, it's an extension of God's wrath against sin. And it may even include capital punishment for the most severe offences. Many countries today choose not to go down that path. But as far as God is concerned, it's a perfectly lawful thing for a country to do. Because such authorities under God wield the sword, it's also 
perfectly acceptable for the maintenance of a military force for a nation's defence. Or to go to the aid of others who are suffering under particularly harsh or unjust treatment. Got a perfect example of that at the moment with the situation in Ukraine. The collection of taxes for the funding of essential services within the nation and for supporting and sustaining basic aspects of civil welfare. All these things are addressed in these opening seven verses, but they're not without their difficulties. And so let's look at some of the issues that these verses do bring up. Well, some people may respond to this by concluding that these verses are not referring to civil authorities at all. When you read through the Bible, you discover certain truths which are revealed. First, there is God, who is over all things, the creator, the sustainer, the provider. With him and under him are his holy angels. And these all dwell not in a physical realm, but in a spiritual realm. That does not make them less real than the physical world. It just means that they are not part of it in the way that we are. And we are not part of that spiritual world in exactly the same way that they are. And then the Bible reveals to us that there is Satan and his demons, angelic beings who rebelled against God, who were cast out from heaven and who are under God's eternal judgment. They haven't yet received their final and ultimate judgment, but they shall, and that day is fixed, and it will come, and in the meantime, they're only able to do as much as God permits them to do, and by God's grace, they are kept from doing their worst. And these two exist in the spiritual realm, Sometimes those in this spiritual realm are referred to in the Bible as principalities and powers. Often this phrase is used to speak of the forces of darkness and wickedness. But it's also used to speak of the heavenly angels with God. So you have to be sure which is which in the context in which you find it in the Bible. So for example in chapter 3 verse 10 of Ephesians you find an example there where it's referring to the holy angels with God whilst in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 it is very clearly speaking of Satan and his dark world so there are these two worlds of light and darkness well we were considering that this morning but it's the same in the spiritual realm and then there's this physical world. And the next kind of authority which is spoken of in this physical world is earthly governments and authorities. In the Bible, this consists mostly of kingdoms and kings and empires and emperors of various sorts. And then the nation of Israel that God created, well, the nation of Israel was established by God to be different to all those other nations. Because God 
was to be their king. And they were to have prophets and priests directed by God through whom God revealed himself and gave his word and on behalf of whom worship took place within the nation of Israel. And nevertheless, in the word that God gave them, he also provided them with civil laws to govern their conduct and their behaviour. So in Romans 13, where the original phrase, which is kept in some translations, is higher powers. We have it in our New King James as governing authorities, but in the Greek it's higher powers. That's a phrase some translations retain. These higher powers, there's only certain things that they could relate to. Is it talking about holy principles and powers? Or is it talking about satanic principles and powers? Or is it talking about earthly authorities? Because I want to suggest when you read through the Bible, the Bible doesn't really provide any other options. Well, Satan doesn't wield power for our good. He doesn't praise goodness. And God certainly doesn't call us to live our lives subject to Satan. That is how we live in our sin and in our rebellion. But that's not how God would have us live. So that option is easily dealt with. They're not the higher powers that are being referred to here. Paul obviously can't be referring to God. These are authorities appointed by God. They are not God himself. And whenever Paul is talking about God, well, he's very clear. How many times will you read the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he speaks of God in very clear language? Could it mean the holy angels? No. The holy angels are God's servants to minister to us. That's for sure. You see that in Hebrews 1.14. But I can't find anything else in the Bible that requires our subjection to the angels like is put to us here. And how would verses 6 and 7 apply to angels? How do we pay taxes to angels? How can it be them? And uh, I've looked at all those who I would consider reputable Reformed Bible teachers. Well, your list might be different to mine, perhaps, but the ones who are on my list, from John Calvin onwards, those who I would routinely turn to for help and assistance, they all insist on this interpretation that I've brought to you, that these higher powers that are being spoken of here are those civil authorities that exist in the world which are appointed by God. They're, they have a delegated authority from God to act on behalf of mankind uh, for basic governance and law and order. 
so if it's a problem to you uh, that our New King James Bible, as with others, uh, says that we're to be subject to the governing authorities and it's a reference uh, to authorities here in this world. Um, well, I'm struggling to see how it could be relating to anything else other than that. I'm not sure uh, who else, what else the Bible places before us that this could possibly be. One of the other problems that people have is that, well, it says here that uh, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. In verse 3, do what is good, you'll have praise from the same. Verse 4, he is God's minister to you for good. And so, do we have to consider that this instruction applies only to governments that do good? Well, some want to also perhaps use this argument to, de to deny that it refers to governments at all, because there is no government that does good. In the same way that Jesus kind of said, well, there's only one who's good, and that's God. Others might say that it can only require such subjection from us if that government is very obviously and in large part doing what it says in verses 3 and 4. Although what criteria you might use to make that kind of judgment about a government is, is not really found in the Bible anywhere. And so that would be entirely dependent upon the thoughts and opinions of men as to who gets to decide which government is good and which government isn't, and when might they have crossed the line, when might they have gone back over the line in the opposite direction. Not so reliable and uh, simply something that would lead to all kinds of uh, debate and worse. This instruction only applies to governments that do good. Well, on the face of it, that might sound quite a reasonable thing to say. The problem with this view is to ignore all of those Old Testament references that we considered last week. And because this is the second part of this message on these verses, you, you do need to either have heard last week's message or make sure that you pick it up. Because those Old Testament references that we looked at last week make it as plain as day that all kings... Even pagan kings are servants of God. The Bible states it explicitly. And we looked at some of them. And sometimes God uses godless authority and wicked behavior to bring his judgment in the earth. He sometimes used pagan nations and wicked kings to bring his judgment against his own people, Israel. Might he not use them likewise today? Might God not use godless governments as he gives whole nations up to their sinfulness, just as we read in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 1 of Romans? Might he not give up an entire nation? 
and in doing that, allow a godless government to reign over them. And it's all of God. They are God's servants, even to do that, according to the Bible. God used godless authority and wicked behaviour to bring about the crucifixion of Christ so that he can be your saviour. Do you have a problem with that, I wonder? This view that it applies only to governments that do good puts a huge question mark over the wisdom of Jesus and his response to the paying of taxes to Rome. Did he not know of Rome's deeds and reputation? Did he not know about their awful pagan idolatry? Did he not know about their dreadful immorality? Did he not know about their, at times, barbaric treatment of people? The worst still yet to come under Nero? Was Jesus sadly deluded about such things as he instructed them to continue paying their taxes to Rome? Did Jesus not know that those taxes that he's encouraging people to pay will fund the wages of that man, Pontius Pilate, who would hand him over to be scourged and crucified? Did Jesus not know that those taxes he's telling people they must pay will fund the wages of the Roman soldiers who will abuse and crucify him? Have you thought these things through? So we find ourselves asking our question, ourselves these kinds of questions, and I understand exactly why we might ask them. How can the likes of Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, possibly be considered as God's servants? Answer, because God in his word says they are. Just like Cyrus, just like Nebuchadnezzar of old. The office they hold is ordained by God. And, well, it's my contention that those who would argue that the likes of these cannot possibly be considered as God's ministers have completely overlooked these other truths that are taught so clearly in God's word as to the extent of God's sovereignty and control over all things and all people and how such men are indeed considered and used by God as his servants in this world. How can it be right to pay any allegiance to such people? Because God says you must. Because to defy them is to defy him and to bring yourself under his judgment. Verse 2. But what about the awful decisions they sometimes make? Good question. Because they do, don't they? First, 
Have you already forgotten chapter 12, verse 18? And the following verses. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. It's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What about the awful decisions they sometimes make? God holds them accountable and he will call them to account for every decision they've made. Second, you do not share in their guilt for being subject to them. That is why Jesus said, go ahead and pay your taxes to Rome. Yes, even to Rome. And people might come along and say, yes, but Jesus, have you seen what that money is being used for? They will be held to account by God. But you must do what is right for you to do. Pay them your taxes. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Children are told to obey their parents. But it doesn't have the caveat in brackets, only if your parents never do anything wrong. No, it's children obey your parents. Why? Because this is right in the Lord. And in obeying your parents, you do not share the guilt of your parents' sins, whatever they might be. You are to obey them and honour them. It's exactly the same principle of submission that is coming down to authorities. And in the other New Testament references on this topic, such as in Titus 3 and in 1 Peter 2, there's no reference there to what you might expect of those authorities. We're simply instructed to make ourselves subject to them and to live in that way. I think it's very clear from God's word that simply disagreeing with authority or disagreeing with a particular authority, or saying that you don't trust a particular authority, cannot be presented as a biblical reason for not living subject to that authority. It is explicitly taught, and over and over and over again, we find godly men and women living just like that in the Bible. But, thirdly, what if their demands would cause us to sin? What if their demands would cause us to sin? Well, submitting to authorities does not extend to obeying them when they command us to do what God has forbidden or when they forbid us from doing what God has commanded. It is not obey without question. It is live your life in subjection to. Often it's very straightforward. Sometimes not quite so. 
Dr. Ossie Sproul uh, makes a couple of helpful comments in his commentary on Romans. He says this, if the civil magistrate calls us to sin, we must say no. But he also says this, some of the laws and regulations in your country today may seem unnecessary. Nevertheless, in obedience to scripture, we must obey even these unless they lead us to sin. We should not be known as those who try to find ways around the laws of the land. Rather, our scrupulous obedience should be a model for the unbelievers around us. We must never give the ruling authorities just cause to view us as a lawless people. Well, I don't know what you make of that, but I think that's very wise counsel. I think that sums up quite well the situation that we find ourselves in. There are, of course, some classic examples in the Bible when the Lord's people had no option but to defy the authorities. Let's think about a few of the more obvious ones. There were the midwives of Israel in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. A new king in Egypt was worried about how large the nation of Israel was becoming, saw them as something as a threat in their midst. And so, in an attempt to halt their growth, he instructed the Israelite midwives to kill all the baby boys that they delivered. Only let the girls live. Well, of course, they can't commit murder. So they didn't. And when questioned, these Israelite women, they're just such strong cookies. By the time we get there, the baby's already been born. It's all done. There's Daniel and his three friends as captives in Babylon. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one who raised Jerusalem to the ground. He's the one who destroyed the temple. He'd made, well, had made, a huge golden statue of himself and ordered all of his civil servants to gather together and music was to be played. And when they heard the music play, they were to bow down and worship the image of the king. Well, for Shadrach, and Meshach and Abednego, three of Daniel's fellow Israelites, they understood that they could not possibly commit such an act of, of idolatry. Such was their love for God. And so they refused. And so they were sent to the fiery furnace. And of course, you know the story, how the Lord protected and delivered them. Some years later, a new king, Darius, he was so impressed with Daniel's integrity and work ethic. This is a God-fearing man working for a pagan government inside that pagan nation. And the king is impressed with his integrity and work ethic as he works for them. And he's deciding, this king, that he's going to make Daniel basically the equivalent of prime minister. Well, the locals were outraged. And they sought to dig up some dirt on Daniel in order to discredit him and make the king change his mind. 
but they could find nothing. Daniel was squeaky clean. So they tricked Darius into writing a decree that if anyone for the next 30 days petitions any man or God other than Darius, they would be thrown to the lions. Now, at first, I don't think Darius saw their deviousness and he went ahead with it, forgetting that a man like Daniel would not fail to continue faithfully in his daily routines of prayer to the Lord his God, which he did three times a day with his window open, facing the direction of Jerusalem, being reminded every day that he is in the nation that destroyed his city and destroyed the place of the worship of the living God. And there he prayed. And Daniel disobeyed that command. In the New Testament, we have those stirring accounts in the life of the early church of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 being commanded by the authorities not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Their reply, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Then in the next chapter, the authorities try to silence them again. Peter and the other apostles answered, we ought to obey God rather than men. When authorities command us to do what God has forbidden, or when they forbid us to do what God has commanded, and they'd had a direct commandment from Christ, you've got to go into all the world and preach the gospel and tell the world about me. That's when tough decisions have to be made. Kill the baby boys? Offer worship to an idol? Pray to someone other than God? Cease to preach Christ? Well, these are non-negotiables and the authority must be disobeyed. Now, of course, for us, in some ways, uh, all of the relevance of this came to a head two years, of co- two years ago, of course, with the, re- the response of governments around the world to the COVID outbreak and issuing never before seen, certainly not in our lifetimes, these lockdown regulations which forbade us from gathering in public or in groups. And the issue was, does our following this instruction put us in opposition to the Bible and our meeting on the Lord's day? Of course, verse 25 of Hebrews 10 was frequently quoted that we must not forsake the gathering of ourselves together Now, of course, one of the things that made this more difficult for many was that the lockdown was not something which was directed explicitly at faith groups or with any underlying animosity against those who desire to meet for worship. It didn't have anything in itself relating to religious or spiritual activity. It had an impact on that, of course, because of its nature but there was nothing explicit in it in that regard. Its aim was not to target or stifle or hamper religious worship or activity. That was not its aim. 
It wasn't of itself an attempt to change or alter or deny something connected with our faith. In that regard, many considered that it wasn't quite in the same category as those much-quoted biblical examples. This was a decision that was being made on the basis of protecting public health, which was being applied community-wide for everybody. And it was for a limited time, it was for a specific purpose. Now, there may be those who reject even that premise, well, fair enough. Uh, but our not being able to meet uh, was, well, how can we put it, more in the way of collateral damage rather than the express intent of what was being uh, told us. Uh, it wasn't intentional spiritual harassment. It's probably also just worth remembering that uh, at, the, at the opposite end of lockdown, as things began to unwind, it took longer than most of us had thought or hoped, but as things began to unwind, it was churches that were amongst the very first people who were able to meet again in groups. And by quite some margin along that timeline, which puts a bit of a question mark over the fact that it was something which was intentionally intended to be a subtle attack against churches. If that was the case, why weren't churches the last ones allowed out of lockdown? Why were churches the first ones who were permitted to meet again, albeit with restrictions in place that we weren't particularly uh, thrilled about, but we were allowed to meet. So at the outset, these decisions were made for all of society. They were to be for a limited time. They were to be for a limited purpose. And there was nothing said directly or explicitly or otherwise about churches not being able to use all other possible means to continue trying to function as, as best as they could in ideal circumstances. Now I understand absolutely that there, all of this stirred up a vast number of opinions and a great deal of debate amongst believers. So churches had to make a decision as to whether or not they should make themselves subject to this particular instruction. And most decided that in such rather new and unique situations, they should. For many church leaders, I think part of the issue was whether this was an issue over which Christians should make themselves appear to be self-serving or arrogant or reckless or uncaring or, yes, lawless. Uh, perhaps some Christians will think, well, you shouldn't be concerned about those kinds of things at all. Well, I'm not quite so sure you can say that. Perhaps that's, that's how churches would have been viewed by the world. You're just self-serving, arrogant, reckless, uncaring, lawless people. We'd have to think very carefully about whether or not we're ready to convey that appearance and when we would do so. But we're not about pleasing men. We're about pleasing God. Well, of course we are. That same God has just instructed us in chapter 12 that as much as depends upon us, we need to live peaceably with all men. So we need to take that into account too and 
well, it wasn't easy. And many churches struggled. Some churches uh, experienced very, very great difficulty within their own congregations over these issues. The verse quoted in, in Hebrews chapter 10 is interesting. It's verse 25, of course. Um, if you're in, begin reading at verse 23. It says this, Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. It strikes me about that verse. It's very much about the state of my own heart as a believer towards other believers. That my being absent from the gathered church must never be because of something which is spiritually deficient within me. My heart should be with the Lord's people whenever they gather not like some who choose to stay away. Perhaps not quite the same thing as a really strict and stern command. Although I recognize, of course, there are many places in the Bible that teach us that regular gathering on the Lord's Day is to be normative for Christian people. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. And of course we found that it was the case that for that limited time we were still able to consider one another, we were still able to seek to stir one another up, not in an unusual way, in a, a way less than satisfactory, I'm sure, for all of us. But not the same kind of oppression that some Christians live under constantly because of rulings which are specifically and explicitly designed to inhibit or prevent their participating in religious activities, as many have suffered over the years. Well, for these and probably many other reasons, the, the pandemic threw up a situation rather novel and unique, which we've never faced before, which stirred up many different views, including some completely opposed to some of the things I've said this evening, and I acknowledge that. For myself, I know there are certain hills that Christians must be prepared to die on. Issues pertaining to the person and nature and work of God as Father and Son and Spirit. Issues relating to the gospel and clear biblical truth, the necessary preaching of the gospel and the Bible. If the government ever tries to interfere with any of those kinds of things, well, I'm ready to defy them. Temporarily suspending meeting together physically for the sake of public health, is that of the same order? Is that so clear cut? Well, some Christians said, yes, it is. Others were really not quite so sure. And it's divided opinions considerably. One thing we mustn't do 
is allow that one issue to bring wholesale division amongst the Lord's people. One thing we mustn't do is cloud, allow that one issue to cloud our judgment on the normal daily realities of what verses 1 to 7 of Romans 13 is teaching. What is clear is what that one issue must not allow us to do is simply abandon verses 1 to 7 of Romans 13. The decisions taken by governments regarding lockdown are not a valid reason to excuse or alter the interpretation of these verses or to dismiss them as if they can no longer apply. Romans 13, 1-7 still stands regardless of any differences we may have had over the pandemic. And surely the scriptures urge us, don't they, that we must bear with one another when we have differences of conscience within the body of Christ. Especially when it's been over an issue so unique as this one. And I want to suggest that actually there are far worse things happening continually in our culture and in our society. These LGBTQ+, have they added anything else to that? I'm sure they've probably added loads to it. These gender issues, which have the potential to change the entire landscape for the next generations of Christians in this country, because we are living amongst the tares, as we thought this morning, we always have been. They've always been there. These lifestyles have always been there. They're just more open and brazen than they ever used to be in the past. And some of these things are a far bigger threat. Some of these issues may well cause us to recognise that this is a hill that I have to stand on and it's going to cost me dearly. And am I ready to do it for the cause of the gospel and for the sake of Christ? There may well be things that earthly governments lay down for us that make the issue of the pandemic lockdown seem like nothing in comparison. And we need to be ready and prepared for that day when it may come. When it is clear, it is clear, we cannot go down that road. We have to take our stand. But in the meantime, we also have to accept these verses as they are in the scripture and live accordingly. The government may, may continue to make all kinds of judgments that we profoundly disagree with. But these verses still apply. And how thankful we are for this morning's reminder from the scriptures and from the parable of Jesus that the true realities which face all mankind are those things to do with our place in this world, either as citizens of God's kingdom or as citizens of another kingdom. And these gospel issues must be the things that remain front and foremost in all of our thinking. Things pertaining to Christ and his gospel.
Um, let's be careful when we, we might get caught up in issues and actually there's very little of Christ and his gospel being spoken about. And how we need to pray for those who govern us. Because they hold an office which God has appointed for them. And so we need to pray for them. And how thankful we are that there is one who governs them. They're not loose cannons, able to do whatever they want and get away with it. They're not. The Lord will hold them to account. There is one who governs them and who reigns in perfect wisdom, perfect grace, perfect righteousness. And there is a day coming when the judge of all the earth shall do right. And we look to him. And we seek to follow him. And this all-wise, all-knowing God has laid down for us these verses in the scripture for the good of mankind uh, that we might live peaceable lives. They're being put into practice in a far from, him, far from perfect world by men and women who do not know him. But as those of us who do, well, we are to do all that is within our powers to be model citizens to the glory of God and for his good. We're faced sometimes with questions that don't have easy answers. And we just acknowledge our own weakness. We acknowledge our own finiteness. We acknowledge our own lack of wisdom. We turn to the Lord, ask him to lead us and guide us aright. Well, may he do so. And in the days that are, are ahead, uh, we do not know how many more times we're going to have to consider uh, these very real issues that face us. Let us pray uh, that we will be sure of those hills upon which we must stand for Christ and for the gospel and for the truth of his word. And may he grant us all the wisdom and grace that we will ever need in order that we may do so.